big debates in journalism right now is over the role of objectivity. Is this an ideal worth upholding, or should we be moving on to other models, like the moral clarity ideal recently proposed in the New York Times? This debate resurfaced again last week at a panel discussion at the Columbia Journalism School, titled The Objectivity Wars. My guest on the program today was on that panel. David Greenberg is a professor of history and journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. He's also a columnist at Politico. He recently published a long-form piece titled The War on Objectivity in American Journalism in the Liberties Journal. David Greenberg is my guest today on Lean Out. David, welcome to Lean Out. My pleasure to be here. Thanks. So nice to have you on. The Liberties piece that we're going to talk about today is a really powerful piece. And I also want to talk a little bit about the Columbia Journalism panel that happened. Um, but first, let's start with the context for this conversation. For people who are not familiar, can you give a little bit of history on the ideal of objectivity in journalism? Sure. You know, this is now an ideal that's coming under a lot of criticism and, and pressure. So it's it's enjoying kind of a renewed discussion about its value. But, you know, when we talk about uh, objectivity in journalism, we're talking mainly about reporting, about news gathering, and a, uh, an approach to gathering and writing and presenting the news uh, that you know, really became mainstream uh, 100, 120 years ago. Uh, one way to think about it is that the press in America in the 19th century, before this ideal of objectivity became mainstream, was extremely partisan. You know, newspapers really openly and unabashedly represented a political program. And the reporting was often quite skewed toward that uh, orientation. So it wasn't just that you had editorials and and uh, opinion pieces making that. That was the whole way the news was framed. And of course, we have always had that. In some ways, it's become, again, stronger today as we have Fox and MSNBC on television. But in the late 19th century and early 20th century, you saw a trend toward professionalization, toward objectivity in lots of fields, in law, in the social sciences. And the idea that the best way to get at truth would be to try to account for one's own subjective biases, to identify them, to try to neutralize them, and to develop methods and procedures that would allow anyone to try to get at the same truth, to try to get at a story fairly. So, you know, in 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 law, it would be about you know how you adjudicate a case, and in, in the social sciences. It, it would be about how you, you know, analyze and understand, you know, society or economics. And in journalism, the idea was to report stories in ways that would give an account that would be accepted and, and ring true to people no matter what their political leanings. Hmm. And this, you know, rather quickly became sort of 
the norm, the standard in what mainstream newspaper journalism was all about. You still had some newspapers that were openly right-wing or openly left-wing, but for the most part, this style that we see in the New York Times or the Washington Post, certainly in the wire services, because the wire services stories had to be adopted by a wide range of newspapers, they really wanted their copy to be acceptable to all kinds of readers and to be appreciated and trusted. And I think by and large, we still deep down share these values of objectivity. We still know it to be a good thing. The alternative is a competing arena of, you know, wildly subjective claims in which readers are left just to kind of pick and choose according to their own ideology or political leanings. And, you know, yet, you know, we think if you want to know, well, what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening in India, in any part of the world, you're going to turn to those sources that you trust to give you an uninflected, as much as possible, unpoliticized account. Mm. And before we get into sort of some of the downsides of challenging these norms of objectivity, um, just talking for a moment about how the sausage gets made, what are some of the policies and practices that are associated with the aspiration of objectivity? Right. And, and calling it an aspiration is, I think, appropriate. No journalist, I think, imagines that he or she is always able to give a perfectly objective account is is always free of biases. You know, the, the whole reason biases are treacherous is because we're often unaware of them and they creep in in ways uh, we don't see. So again, objectivity really was developed as a method. What do journalists do to make sure that they're not letting their biases get the better of them? Well, part of it is you talk to multiple sources. You don't just rely on one person's account, whether it's an official government account or someone who's an advocate. You you get people on both sides or many sides of an issue. Even things like attribution, uh, which seems fairly basic in you know journalism 101. But if you make a st- if someone gives you a statement that statement may be true or false. But if you attribute the statement to a person, the journalist is not is going to be making a true statement. We had this, you mentioned the other day, if I can jump ahead, um, a Columbia Journalism School panel on this uh, subject. And my friend Masha Gessen, who writes for The New Yorker, said that Masha didn't want to put into a New Yorker story a denial of atrocities that was offered by the Russian government because it would be contaminating the story with a lie. And I pointed out, it's not a lie if you say, you know, a Russian government spokesman said X or Putin said claimed X, that that's a way of actually making the story true. And the reader will then know, okay, this is a claim coming from a source. So by sourcing your claims, attributing your claims, that's also a method to help the reader understand what's true, where certain claims are coming from. All kinds of things from trying to avoid opinionated editorializing commentary in your news columns. I mean, there's a place for that on the opinion pages and and, and, 
uh, columns. But when you're giving the news, you know, the, the attempt is to sort of tell it straight. And, and there's a whole kind of other uh, sort of a whole welter of procedures and practices that have evolved over the last century that have, um, you know, tried to uh, help us attain uh, this, this goal of, of, of giving an account of the news that everybody can, uh, or almost everybody can agree upon its it sort of, you know, accuracy and fairness. Yeah, the moment that you just referenced with Masha was was quite a remarkable moment. I do want to get into a few of the, the claims that were made at that panel in a moment. But first, in the Liberties essay, you note that the war on objectivity began years ago. You, you write that it is one of the distinguishing features of the cultural and intellectual history of our time. Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. So when we talk about objectivity in journalism, as I said, everybody knows that we sort of fall short of the ideal all the time. And I would say, to simplify, there's sort of two ways that you can misfire. One is to editorialize too much, so that too much opinion comes into a news story, and you feel like you're getting a partial account, special pleading, uh, a puff piece, a hatchet job, a slanted story. The other way, which is much maligned today, is a kind of false equivalency, where in the effort to give multiple accounts, you give sort of equal weight, as Eric Severide said in the 50s about some of the journalism around McCarthyism, you give equal weight to, to the truth as to the lie. And this is a critique that was made in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. It's, it's not new today, even though a lot of people, sort of younger journalists, think they're clever to have discovered this today. It's, it's a longstanding pitfall. Now, in the 60s, I think, objectivity came under fire in a, in a sort of new, more foundational way. Instead of saying, hey, we're not living up to this ideal, a lot of younger journalists kind of partaking of the counterculture and sort of the, the, the new radicalism of the era began to say the whole ideal is sort of a mystification that it's a way of, of tricking us into thinking we're doing good journalism when, in fact, from the left, the claim was this shores up, you know, a conservative establishment power structure. And from the right, this was this shores up a liberal power structure. But both the left and the right, interestingly, made kind of similar critiques. And so in the last 50 years, we've seen professional journalists in print, but also in broadcast and other media sort of try to acknowledge the elements of truth in those critiques and accommodate and find ways to allow into newspaper reporting. Sometimes there needs to be a little bit more voice, a little bit more analysis, um, a little more clarity about, you know, well, which claims are true and which claims are false. You know, we've we've seen a proliferation of sort of different modes of journalism but still, I think, holding on to those essential tenets. There's a, a scholar of journalism um, at Columbia, Michael Shudson, really one of the leaders in the field, who calls this objectivity 2.0, that it, it, it sort of incorporated these criticisms and yet survived. And I think now even that objectivity 2.0 is coming under criticism again 
uh, sort of there's like a renewed assault along much the same lines, although I think with some new elements. And the question again is, can can we return to or can we hold on to an understanding that it's still important to have a core of accuracy, of reliability, of methods that try to identify and correct for the subjectivities that is part of human nature that that creep into reporting. And there's another sort of standard that's being talked about now, uh, this idea of moral certainty or moral clarity. Wesley Lowry, who was on the panel, uh, has advocated for that in the New York Times. Uh, Lewis Wallace, also on the panel, has said this old way has to go. You write in the Liberties piece, those newly fashionable phrases make us pause, not only because they were first popularized by Bush during the war on terrorism, but also because determining the correct moral posture on a political or policy issue is almost always difficult and certainly beyond the capacity of a daily journalist working at digital speed. Let's talk about this idea of moral clarity. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, I find it somewhat um, worrying, disturbing that it's so easily latched onto. And it's sort of a sign of our times. People feel such a sense of threat uh, whether it's coming from Trump and the right. Um, but, you know, pe- people on the right also feel a, a threat, you know, from the left uh, that may be misplaced or, or what have you. But we're living in times where everything is kind of overblown and dire and emergency. And in, in that context, there's kind of a, a sense of desperation that we need to assert moral truths unambiguously, you know, as if this were, and, and people often you know go back to comparisons to Weimar Germany like on the eve of the Nazi takeover and the, ah you know people had to speak out and you know first of all as as bad and worrying as things are we're not at that moment so that's it's it's a it's a different situation but you know even if it were wouldn't we still wouldn't we still need to determine the facts? Wouldn't we still need to determine what truly happened in this situation before we make our moral judgments about it? There have been a lot of incidents recently where there's sort of been a rush to moral judgment without knowing the facts. I mean, you know, one that somebody in the audience the other night uh, reminded me about was a story of some kids on the mall in Washington, D.C., who, according to a video, looked like they were harassing a group of Native Americans. But in fact, you know, the situation was quite different. And there had been, we can call it a journalism of moral judgment or moral certainty that had been condemning these kids, basically trying them in the media without all the facts being in, that turned out to be quite wrong. And, and they ended up, you know, some both Washington Post and CNN and maybe one other outlet ended up having to settle lawsuits because of their irresponsible reporting. So, you know, having one's moral anchor is important, you know, in any field, in any pursuit. But part of what journalism demands is ferreting out the facts 
first. And there's kind of a, um, you know, putting the cart before the horse going on where if, if we lead with our moral convictions uh, before we really know what happened, uh, we can also get into trouble. I mean, one, one thing I'll say further on this point, several years ago, even starting during the Bush administration, it became common on the right to just sort of dismiss out of hand and not even pay attention to liberal opinion, even just sort of mainstream reporting that contradicted the convictions on the right. And people, somebody came up with this sort of unfortunate term, I guess that I've taken to using epistemic closure, sort of the <laughs> knowledge base closing up and being impervious to outside information. And there was a famous moment in the 2012 election night coverage on Fox where, you know, the, the Fox anchors or maybe been Carl Rove just couldn't believe that Mitt Romney was going to lose according to Fox's own projections, which were being done in an objective fashion by data analysts. And they went back into the back room to talk to the number crunchers who to attest that, yes, you know, Romney's projected to lose these particular states. I mean, and there were many other examples on the right. Well, I think we still have that on the right, clearly, as you see with COVID and election denialism. But we're also now seeing that on the left. Mm -hmm. So certain stories, whether it was about the possibility that the COVID origins might not have been in the wet market, but in, in a laboratory, the notion that there might have been something to the stories about Hunter Biden's laptop, which when the New York Post reported it was sort of kicked off Twitter. So the left is kind of getting in its own form of epistemic closure where they're not even willing to entertain ideas that may seem threatening or anathema. And then sometimes those ideas turn out to be either true or partly true or worth considering. So only a journalism that is open and is empirical and is objective. And of course, objective is a complicated term. People mean different things by it here. But that and as opposed to a journalism of moral clarity or moral certainty where you know where you're going to end up before you start, that, that's the only way I think we can really learn the truth about things because we're always going to be wrong, no matter how virtuous or politics, even if we, want, we believe that our own worldview is fundamentally sound, sometimes the other side has a point. Mm. I want to ask you about something that Wesley Lowry said during the panel. He called newsrooms apartheid institutions and claimed that every single day mistakes get made because the newsroom leadership lacks racial diversity. He's written elsewhere, as you quoted in your piece, the views and inclinations of whiteness are accepted as the objective neutral. How do you think through those arguments? Well, first, you know, I think I think it's just wrong to use words like apartheid. That just you know, that's sensationalistic, it's hyperbolic. Apartheid was a legal regime that explicitly sought, that explicitly did consign Blacks in South Africa to an inferior position in all walks of society. Now, you could say at one point, American newsrooms actively, you know, and openly discriminated against Blacks. 
That's no longer the case. <laughs> you, they still are insufficiently integrated. There is still uh, a kind of soft uh, racism that occurs. There's still racial blind spots where you know white editors may be unaware of or indifferent to uh, perspectives of black reporters, colleagues, readers. And I certainly agree that we have a long way to go in sufficiently integrating our newsrooms and news institutions, both at the senior level and in the rank and file. So, you know, I, I don't I don't fundamentally disagree. And in fact, I, I, I strongly share a lot of his criticisms about the need to, to create integrated and diverse newsrooms. But, you know, I think I said at the Columbia event, to say that because the rules of objectivity, the practice of journalism has been uh, uh, hampered or, 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 you know, flawed by a blind spots or even racism uh, over the years, does not fundamentally impugn the ideal of objectivity itself. It impugns the way it was pursued and implemented um, with insufficient attention to what Black reporters' concerns were, what Black readers' concerns might be. An analogy I gave is in science, in like medical trials, clinical trials, you know, we've had stories about how certain clinical trials turned out to be flawed because all of the people or almost all the people who were in the trials were white or were male. And then it turned out that those medicines or drugs, you know, had different <laughs> reactions for black people or for women. Is the problem that clinical trials are wrong? That the scientific method is wrong? No, the scientific method and clinical trials are still a valid way of trying to get at the truth of the efficacy of the medicine. The problem is the experiment was badly done because of these racist assumptions, unintentionally racist assumptions, perhaps in some cases, maybe in an earlier time it was intentionally so. So they were flawed through their racist application, but that doesn't mean the underlying method uh, should be junked. And I, I think that we, we can see the same thing in, in, in journalism, there are plenty of black journalists, senior editors who are African-American who believe in these same ideals of objectivity. They just think, well, you weren't considering these people. You weren't considering this approach. You weren't looking at it from that perspective. Um, you know, I say, I think in the objectivity piece, like the fact that, you know, Walter Lippmann and some of the early theorists of journalistic objectivity were white doesn't make objectivity the tool of whiteness any more than Isaac Newton being white makes gravity a white concept. I mean, there are places where, you know, it's appropriate to think about how race plays into our uh, understanding of certain concepts, but there's also still our universal human truths of human nature, of, of gravity, of science, uh, of of the way thinking and the mind works, you know, it's it, there are some circles, of course. I don't think too many people really believe this. That like to 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 insist on objectivity is 
is racist and that you know um or or you know you you, you see this stuff it kind of came out of the 60s linear thinking uh you know being on time a concern with accuracy all kinds of things are said to be white concepts and you know frankly that's that's i think condescending and insulting toward blacks or other non-whites that somehow they're they're less capable of achieving uh these these goals which you know have validity quite apart from race it also sort of touches on uh, an idea that I wanted to raise, which is viewpoint diversity. So one of the assumptions I think Wesley Lowry's comments rest on is that skin color and viewpoint can be correlated. And also that uh, skin color uh, has some sort of special understanding. So I'm thinking, for example, of if you have an Ivy League educated, uh, financially prosperous journalist who happens to be black, does that black journalist have a special understanding of the unique pressures of say, you know, a low income wage worker living in a priority neighborhood? Can those two things, you know, maybe they can, maybe they can't, I don't know. Um, But on the issue of viewpoint diversity, it struck me on the panel, you didn't have a, a conservative voice there. And in many of our newsrooms, we don't. And perhaps that might be useful in terms of pitting bias against bias to get at some of these things. Can we talk about that for a moment? Yeah, I mean, I was actually surprised because even a few years ago, a panel like that would have had some representative of the conservative viewpoint that says, look, the problem with the news media, the mainstream news media, is not that it's too centrist or too balanced. I mean, everybody there was saying there was sort of too much fairness and balance in the news media today, kind of except for me. And, you know, the conservative would say, no, the the problem is that, you know, the news organizations all skew to the left and that they sort of prioritize or favor liberal viewpoints either deliberately or, you know, through a kind of bias, through, you know, the same kind of bias that can play with race, that is in ways people are unaware of. And of course, if it's the dominant thinking in your whole newsroom or news organization, that can be a problem. You want some conservative voices around to say, hey, that's not how I see it. Or, hey, the way you're wording all these stories is really stacking the deck. You know, it's it's important to have those, those, you know, that diversity of opinion in a newsroom. And by the same token, I was, I was, as I say, surprised that on the stage, there wasn't someone saying that because the truth is the main reason people are losing trust in the news media is not that they do too much both sides journalism. <laughs> The main reason people lose trust in the news media is they think they're becoming kind of a handmaiden to the Democratic Party and the liberal agenda and and all of that. Now, you know, I think that right wing critique is often, uh, you know, overstated and and uh, unfair and misses out on a lot of important um, ways that journalists do try to be objective. But to not include that perspective on the panel suggested to me that there was maybe a bias at work in the construction of the panel. Mm. That's interesting. And I want to end on this because I I think this issue of trust is so key. So I think it was Lewis Wallace that said on the panel that there is no we that had all this trust in the media in the first place. 
Um, and yet the feedback I get from the public constantly is that they have lost trust and that it is a direct result of perceived bias. I hear this from people on the left and the right. Um, people think that we've become too activists, that we have lost objectivity, and they really want us to stop inserting our own views. This is anecdotal. Of course, this is mail I'm getting and messages and feedback. But how do we measure this? Like, is this a broadly held ideal? Is there a way of quantifying that? And if so, why do the readers what they want from us. Why does this rarely factor into this debate over objectivity? Yeah, well, I mean, it has been measured. And if you look at public opinion polls, um, you know, there's a, uh, there's a steep drop in, in trust in the media, credibility, reliability. So yeah, Lewis Wallace was just wrong on the fact. You can go back and find much higher uh, levels of trust as measured by survey data for what that's worth. I think it's probably worth uh, a, a fair amount. So yeah, it, it, it is the case that this is eroding and it's eroding precisely at the same time as other social science research has shown the space for opinion and argument is crowding out the sort of more factually reported quote-unquote, objective news. So th those two things are happening together. Now, I, does that prove a correlation? No, but I think it strongly su suggests one. So, you know, my own view is that it is time for news organizations to try to dramatically address this. And you see some good small signs of it. For example, the New York Times has revised its Twitter policy. So they're really discouraging, you know, journalists, especially, again, news journalists, reporters from taking to Twitter with a lot of, you know, snarky, cynical, angry, opinionated tweets and to tweet less and to do so in a manner befitting a reporter. You know, that was like an explicit directive. And I think other news organizations are moving in that direction. You know, why is that important? Well, it's, you know, it's not like Twitter is the be all end all, but, you know, you help earn trust in your reporters if the reader says, you know what, maybe this reporter is voting Democratic at the end of the day or Republican or whichever way, but I know they're not motivated by a desire to move the world in a left or right direction. Their motivation, their reason for being a journalist is to help this describe the world as it is so we can have a better informed uh, democracy. I mean, that's, you know, so, you know, and I think there are other ways that some journalistic leaders are recognizing the kind of crisis of objectivity that we're in and moving, yes, to kind of avoid a sort of facile both sides journalist journalism when that's not appropriate, but also to avoid resistance journalism, you know, the, it's the role of the New York Times or Washington Post to stop Donald Trump. You know, maybe it is the role of journalism to protect democracy, but no, it's not by having your White House reporter like beat the drum against Donald Trump. It's by having your White House reporter describe or your, you know, the one covering Trump as accurately and truly what the man has done and is doing so that people can make up their mind. I mean, as I said in the, uh, in the liberties piece, objectivity was never Donald Trump's friend. 
<laughs> you know, that's the mistake that I think people like Wes and Lewis and Masha, all people I respect, but, you know, that's the mistake they make. Uh, objectivity is actually going to advance the goals of a liberal, I don't mean a partisan Democratic Party liberal, I mean in the in the generic Enlightenment liberal sense. Doesn't mean history progresses in a straight line, but you know, we, we do have to not relinquish, you know, our faith in, in the Enlightenment liberal methods that have led us to a very open, diverse, democratic society where, you know, we trust we trust the electorate to to make political decisions. Well, thank you so much for making the time for this conversation today. I hope everyone reads this piece. It's long. There's just so much to dig into with it. Uh, it's really quite a meal of a piece. So thank you again. Thanks. And if I may just say, if people kind of want to go to uh, Liberty's Journal, um, I, I don't have the URL in front of me, but um, uh, it's uh, Liberty's Culture and Politics, a journal of culture and politics. You can find it on the web and it's worth uh you're uh, taking out a subscription to an excellent journal. Well, thank you again. Great to speak with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing at tarahenley.substack.com.